Memoirs of a Self-Loathing IT Professional by Bernie Weezer. Copyright 2014. I'm doing something a little bit differently with this podcast because it has been recommended to me by editors that I split it up into two stories. It's actually the culmination of about eight real-life events. So I kind of like the flow of the original story. So I'm going to put out the podcast based on the two combined before I go back and splice it into two individual stories. Play nice now. Draft two. Things were changing at Banana Energy Corporation. The price of oil had slipped below $100 a barrel, and the price of natural gas was in the toilet. The senior leadership decided to try a few things differently. As the human resources cost is one of the biggest costs to any organization, middle management was asked to trim its workforce spend by 10%. For many groups, this meant letting a few people go, and the advice from HR was to try and retire some of the older workers. However, middle management thought it best to let the more junior staff go. It was a very strange time, where some managers ended up with one direct report, and in other cases managers had no reports under them to manage, nor do the actual work. The company also started the Innovation Challenge. The point of this initiative was to solicit really good ideas from the staff about ways to save money through innovation. If there was a new technology that had a cumulative savings potential, the executive wanted to hear about it. It backfired. The two most common suggestions were to remove bottled water and pop and get rid of the coffee machines. Management followed up on the suggestions only to see staff spending more time out of office at the local coffee shop and convenience stores. Depriving IT folks of caffeine was a particularly bad idea as the entire IT organization became edgy, grouchy, and or dozy. The IT workforce was mostly contractors. These contractors were already spread pretty thin, so IT management was told no new hires, no new contracts. Chuck Flores, the chief information officer, wasn't sure what to do. His outsourcing idea was proceeding slowly. He had offered up a few big pilot projects to an umbrella service provider only to have them fail miserably. So he did the next best thing. He told IT middle management to ask all of their contractors to take a 10% pay cut. Few of us complained publicly because the job market was depressed. Those that did complain saw a 100% reduction in hours. When your contract says you get paid by the hour, eliminating hours is a novel way to get out of a contract without breaking it. Banana's regional offices had their own idea of how to fix the IT problem, decentralize most of the IT functions. Many of the regions had their own IT staff anyway, so this was a convenient way to keep the on-the-ground local IT staff while obviating the corporate staff. Chuck and his leadership fought the idea vigorously. It was a hard fight because home office wasn't the group pulling product out of the ground to make money. They were a pure cash burn. In the end, Chuck won, and it started a new dawn of centralization. Redundant IT systems became the focus for elimination, but so did a cast of workers, the developers that built in-house applications and or productivity solutions. Directive 182 went into effect. Thou shalt buy before partner, partner before build. Building software was a last resort. This was in line with a previous conversation with Chuck when he said that software development was not a core competency. The busiest, most productive, and most respected group in the IT department was obliterated, the aptly named Productivity Group. These were the experts on Microsoft Office desktop tools, the guys and gals that built enhanced spreadsheets and databases directly for business clients that ran on the client's own desktops. The productivity group's work was too small to fit into projects, so it went away along with the general and administrative budgets. Not everything was dire. Though many managers started to select big vendor one-stop shop solutions, a few bigger development projects also started where there were no vendor offerings. I didn't understand the big system think, because big systems also had big price tags, and spending more to tighten the belt just seemed crazy, especially when you needed those specialized human resources to keep the machinery running. 
but the in-house projects made a lot of sense because they would unify business processes across business units and replace siloed applications with a single coherent solution. The wrench thrown into the machine was that the new projects were to follow the guidance from our new project management office under the leadership of Alan Chang. Another control added to the mix was the Newborn Enterprise Architecture team, a group that reported into senior IT leadership with the intention of forward-thinking and facilitated strategic planning. Their first big mandate was to implement the inventory, rationalization, and consolidation of technology used throughout Banana's organization. Jointly, the PMO and EA groups would review all projects and performance, give their advice, and strongly voice their opinions and objections if a rogue project didn't fit into their plans. Anne had a couple of big projects come her way. She was very eager to accept work from the IT leadership or clients, even when she didn't have the appropriate resources to deliver. She picked me to be the technical lead for one of them, the land management system. Energy companies need to have large groups of people to administer issues and contracts above and below ground. Above ground is called surface land, and below ground is called mineral or subsurface land. Surface land primarily deals with landowners, and subsurface deals with the government for mineral rights. I always found it strange that the federal or provincial governments are the ones that actually own the stuff on the ground, which really means the people of Alberta and Canada own said resources. The upstream energy companies just pay a license to extract the resources. Sometimes I'm used, if I own it, why don't I get paid for it? It was really sobering when I saw the previous year's annual report and the chief executive officer's $15 million combined paycheck. And told me I could pick my team, if it consisted of Jeff, Todd, and Kenneth. I was also offered a developer from a different group named Mike Dixon. Anne explained that Mike would be on loan because the other IT manager wanted to keep Mike around but didn't have any immediate work for him. I agreed to the team, though I didn't really have a choice in this makeup at all. I voiced my objection over Kenneth because he doesn't take direction well. Anne assured me that Kenneth would do whatever I asked, and if he didn't, she would do something about it. Todd had a growing, visible dislike of Kenneth. It was easy enough to read Todd's body language as soon as Kenneth opened his mouth in Todd's presence. Todd would cross his arms and stare at the floor with a frown. Kenneth didn't seem to pick up on these not-so-subtle visual cues. I thought I could manage Kenneth because of Anne's assurance. She also told me that she had great faith in my ability to herd the cats. I attempted to lay down the law in our first project meeting. We're going to do this by the book, I said, and the book I chose was called Managing the Software Process. We set forth all our rules of engagement, artifacts to be generated, and meetings to be held. Everyone knew their role and what part of the system they'd be accountable for. We also agreed to interim testing and quality reviews. I was confident it was going to work. Everyone signed their name to the process document, so I believed I had buy-in. What I didn't count on was the random elements of personal behavior and professionalism. I wanted to have a less formal but strong camaraderie amongst the development team, so given the lack of coffee machines, I invited everyone to Third Cup Coffee Shop on the ground floor of our building. I don't do coffee, it's a waste of money, Kenneth told me, so he opted out. When I approached Mike, he asked, is this required because I really am busy? Mike wasn't located on our floor. Given that Anne told me he was on loan due to a lack of work, I was surprised by his response, but I didn't challenge him on it. After all, I wasn't his boss. I wanted the guys to want to communicate, and I didn't want to foster communication with a big stick. So the first coffee meeting was with me and the dudes, Jeff and Todd. Todd wasn't a coffee drinker. He preferred herbal tea, but he went anyway because he knew the value of being in the loop. You heard who the new lead of Enterprise Architecture is, Jeff asked rhetorically. No, I replied. Your friend Paul Barton, Jeff said with an evil grin. I had not forgotten Paul turning me into IT security. I didn't trust him. Having Paul in a position of authority where he could just say no for no good reason really troubled me. How did that happen, I asked. The web server and Unix teams got eliminated. Leadership didn't want to lose him, so they offered him a full-time gig, Jeff replied. Well, how does this affect us, I asked. 
and told me we just need to carbon copy Ellen and Paul on everything that we do, especially our process documentation, Jeff replied. Why didn't she tell me? I asked, puzzled. She was going to. She's just busy, and she saw me today on other issues, Jeff replied. Todd swirled his teabag in his teacup. So these guys are supposed to be giving us the processes and procedures for us to do what we do, but they don't have them yet, so we just pass on ours for their approval? Sounds good to me, as long as they don't block the project, I said. Be prepared for our process to become their process, Todd stated. They might even leave our names on the documents, he said with a wry smile. The project started well enough. I managed to gather the requirements and work with the team to create a preliminary design. I broke the application down into systems, and everyone was assigned their piece. The challenge didn't really start until implementation was underway. I had to pester Mike to get him to make his weekly goals. His excuse was that he was always too busy and he would get on it. Kenneth started well, but started going rogue as the implementation became more complex. He had a bad habit of tweaking other developers' code first without talking to them. Todd was really frustrated by this because he was meticulous in his work. Every line of Todd's code had discipline and elegance. He started bringing up ownership and change management repeatedly in the meetings, and I kept supporting him by reminding everyone to stick to the process that we had agreed to. Todd was also frustrated by Kenneth's attitude towards testing. Testing is the contract, Todd would say. When the tests pass, the code is golden and we move on. Kenneth ignored this advice and didn't write tests. After a while, Todd's tests started failing. At this point, Todd came to me exasperated and I called a meeting to deal with the issue of change control. After my monologue on how we were to play nicely together through applied change management, Todd brought up his grievance. I would like to mention that my part, the transaction subsystem, was working when I checked it in two weeks ago, but then I noticed that the data validation tests were failing. I updated my repository only to find out that Kenneth had gone in and rewritten parts of my code, and it's those changes that are failing. Mark, would you please ask Kenneth why he would be in the transaction code when his current task is reporting and printing? Kenneth piped up before I could be diplomatic. In an Agile project, every developer can modify the code base, Kenneth said. This isn't an Agile project, Kenneth, Todd said emphatically. Why are you touching my code? Don't be such a baby. Agile is the best way we can do this project, Kenneth replied. Baby? It took me a month to write that code and you arbitrarily go and change it? Even if we were following Agile, that we are not, you should have run the tests to prove that your changes didn't fundamentally change the functionality. Agile is test-driven development. You didn't run the tests, and you didn't bother to go back and fix the goddamn tests. Agile is iterative and adaptive through cross-functional teams, Kenneth said even louder. Your code was breaking my build, so I fixed it. Mike quietly asked, Are you quoting from the Agile Manifesto? That doesn't mean what you think it means. Todd was fuming and yelled, You bloody well rewrote it! I had to fix my build, and your code was broken. Maybe you just don't understand what I did, Kenneth snarled. It wasn't broken. It was broken because you didn't do a full update from version control, Kenneth, Todd fired back. The code went through a full build and test. All you had to do was refresh all and run the tests. I shouldn't have to waste my time on that, Kenneth said even louder. Oh my god, you are such an asshole, Todd exclaimed. Just because you talk louder and more often than anyone else doesn't mean that you're right. What do you even know about programming? My dog is a better programmer than you, Kenneth shouted. It was at that point that Todd stood up, grabbed his chair, and threw it across the table in Kenneth's direction. Kenneth jumped up, but the chair slid by him off the table and into the wall, taking out a fine chunk of alabaster. Gentlemen, gentlemen, please, Jeff implored, also now on his feet, and motioning for calm with his hands. Wow, Mike said, sitting up with a straight and shocked, wide-eyed look on his face. I did not see that coming. Okay, just sit down, I said with extreme authority and finger-pointing. Everyone sat down and just looked into the table as if they wanted to crawl underneath it. I waited a few moments, half expecting security to come through the door and throw us all out. When it felt safe, I said, 
I think we've done enough damage for one day. The meeting is done. Todd, please stay here. Kenneth was the first out. I worried he would run straight to Anne's office. Jeff was the last one out, and he closed the door behind him. We just did $20,000 of damage to the ivory tower, I said, looking at Todd. Usually, you're so sedate. Todd got up and went to the wall to examine it. Sorry, that guy just pisses me off. He's been screwing with the code base for weeks. It's like he's intentionally sabotaging the project. Is everything else okay? I mean, that was pretty extreme, Todd, and so not okay, I said. Yeah, everything's fine. I just can't deal with that guy. He makes stress, Todd said, shaking his head. I'll talk to Anne and see what I can do to get him reassigned, I offered. Thanks. If I don't get fired for the wall, I'll pay for the repairs, Todd said in a quiet voice. Don't worry about that, I said. If Kenneth doesn't run to tell Anne, I'll just call maintenance and tell them we had an accident. Don't lie on my behalf, Todd said bluntly. I'm not lying. I'm sure you didn't mean to miss, I jested as I gestured to the door. Todd laughed. Thanks, he said, as he shuffled out. To my relief, Kenneth did not run to Anne. No one talked about it, and I figured everybody was too embarrassed. When I called building maintenance to apologetically report the damaged wall, the man on the other end of the phone said, Yeah, don't worry about it. It's a cost of doing business. He didn't want to know how it happened, and I got the impression he didn't really care. I met with Anne a couple of days later and suggested there would be a mutiny if Kenneth didn't move on to something more challenging. I explained that Kenneth was making more work for us, jeopardizing the timeline and demoralizing the team, and was surprisingly sympathetic. I just happened to have a smaller project he can work on, she said. Thank you, Mark, for being so diplomatic. Kenneth was happy to be moved off the project. In our last status meeting with him, he was the one to raise his departure, and he made it sound like a promotion. Anne had given him something only he could do, which sounded a lot like him telling us that we were all idiots. Mike started coming to the coffee meetings as if somehow our shared experience had strengthened our bond. We managed to finish the land management system six weeks ahead of schedule. At our impromptu launch party, Jeff, who was a basketball enthusiast, made a toast that brought some perspective to the whole project. It takes ten hands to score a basket, but only two hands to throw a chair. Here's to the throw that made our success possible. Kenneth was invited, but he opted out. If you are interested to read how either part of the story is embellished, come back again and I'll have a posting on the blog when it's done. If you like the stories, you can always go on to Amazon, Google Play, or iTunes and purchase a copy of each story for a buck, which is about a quarter the price of a Starbucks coffee. Thank you for your support.